Beloved, an oxymoron is two words that go together that are seemingly contradictory. Uh, the classic example is jumbo shrimp. You can think of other examples, government intelligence. <laughs> it can go on, I have other examples, but I'll stop there and let the uh, word of God offend, not my vain attempt at humor. But one oxymoron I will bring out that goes more towards the point here is liberal theologian. And what I mean by that is this. I have never been able to understand why a man or a woman would spend time and sometimes even a lifetime in a vocation studying something that they don't believe. Uh, they're like the poor. We will always have them with us. And one liberal theologian from the early 20th century was a man named Rudolf Boltmann. And he had a nihilistic view of the meaning of life, the meaning of history, and the purpose of life. He believed in just a vacuum of meaning and purpose. And it's captured by this quote, which I will give you here. Boltmann said this, and again, this is around his understanding of the meaning of life and history. Quote, the most accurate chart of the meaning of history is the set of tracks made by a drunken fly with feet wet with ink staggering across a piece of white paper. They lead nowhere and reflect no pattern of meeting, end quote. Uh, how sad, how tragic. By contrast, we know by God's grace and mercy in the newness of life, <coughs> excuse me, that we enjoy, we understand that the God of the Bible is the God of history. There is meaning, there is purpose, ultimately his own glory. But there is meaning and there is purpose for the entire universe. There is meaning and purpose for your life and for my life. God told us through the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 46 verse 10, Isaiah says of God that he is declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things which have not been done saying my purpose will be established and I will accomplish all my good pleasure. The ultimate purpose, the ultimate meaning is God's good pleasure, God's glory. And what we see in the pages of the scripture and was even somewhat part of what we sang or reflected in what we sang is even the glory of God. The glory of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ is radiated through his people. And this is because history has meaning. History doesn't just fade into nothingness and dissipate like the bad ending of a book. It's not some kind of merry-go-round which you get on when you're born, get off when you die, and it just keeps going round and round with no purpose, no end. No, beloved, no, dear friend, history is moving towards a climax, towards an end. You didn't, I, we did not come into existence by chance. God did not create us to eke out a meaningless existence and then fizzle into nothingness at the end. Again, there is an end, there is a purpose. Now, when we think of the end times, we understand that different believers, different Christians, have sometimes different understanding of some details of the end times. But all true believers, all Christians, understand the main point, the main aspect of the end times, namely that Jesus Christ is coming again. He is coming again to rescue those who have received him, and he is coming again to repay those who reject him. And that takes us into our passage. Please open your Bibles to 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. Our passage this morning are verses 5 through 10. 
I, I covered verse 5 last Sunday, and really verse 5 is kind of a transition verse. Both topically and grammatically, it points both to what preceded Paul's eruption of thanksgiving and a thankful heart and a boastful thanking that Paul had about God's good work in the heart and lives and minds of this young church in Thessalonica. And it also points to his strong words that come in verses 6 through 10 of the future coming of Christ. Again, and actually I think what I'll do is let me begin reading in verse 1 through verse 10 to set the stage, to have the entire picture of the beginning of this great second letter from Paul to the church in Thessalonica. This is the word of God. Paul and Silvanus and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brethren, as is only fitting, because your faith is greatly enlarged and the love of each one of you toward one another grows ever greater. Therefore, We ourselves speak proudly of you among the churches of God for your perseverance and faith in the midst of all your persecutions and afflictions which you endure. This is plain indication of God's righteous judgment so that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which indeed you are suffering. For after all, it is only just for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you. And to give relief to you who are afflicted and to us as well. When the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire. Dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. And these will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power when he comes to be glorified in his saints on that day and to be marveled at among all who have believed for our testimony to you was believed. Beloved brother and sister, this is the word of God that has been read in your hearing. Please attend to it as such. Now, in verse 5, verse 5, as I mentioned, is transitional between verses 1 and 4 and between verses 6 and and 10. And what it tells us, look at it again, verse 5, plain indication, evidence, evidence of God's righteous judgment, so that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God, for which indeed you are suffering. Back in verse 4, Paul talked about the persecution and afflictions. And what he is saying is, those persecution, that persecution and those afflictions are evidence, not just as we briefly discussed last week, not just that Christians, by God's grace and mercy, can survive in persecution and afflictions, or even thrive in persecution and afflictions, but it is God's eternal good and holy design for us, for our persecution and affliction, so that we may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God. Not that we would be qualified for the kingdom of God. Our qualification, our adequacy comes from Jesus Christ, his worth. Not that we qualify for the kingdom of God, but that we would be better fitted. We would be better suited for the kingdom of God. Very similar to if you were to go and be fitted for a tux, for a great banquet, or you were going, dear ladies, to be fitted and suited for 
a wedding dress for your upcoming wedding in the same way. This is evidence of God's righteous judgment that we would be made more suitable for entrance and presence and life in his kingdom. And beloved, we know from what God says in all of Scripture and certainly from what he tells here clearly, this is evidence of his righteous judgment and it is righteous and good even that God's holy children would suffer even at the hands of unholy men, at the hands of ungodly men. We also understand that his purpose, his intent, his design here is not to punish but to purify, to fit his children for the family of God and to make us suitable for his kingdom. And beloved, what we'll see as we now look at verses 6 through 10, we see three evidences of God's righteous judgment made manifest. Relief, retribution, and reward. Relief and reward for the rescued. Retribution for the rebellious. And this is meant, all of chapter 1 is meant for encouragement. Uh, if you want to have an outline in your mind of the three chapters of this book, chapter 1 is encouragement in persecution. Chapter 2 is explanation of the day of the Lord. And chapter 3 is exhortation or exhortations to readiness. So all of chapter 1 is written by the Apostle Paul to give encouragement to this church that is suffering persecution and many afflictions. Uh, we don't in our country Atlanta this time suffer the kind of persecution in any way shape or form that they did at that time but we do know in this present misery we, de in, we do indeed suffer many afflictions, many tribulations and so this is for encouragement to us and what's amazing about this beloved in chapter 1 even in our passage you and I are to be encouraged with the blessed glory of heaven and encouraged with the bitter gall of hell. And I say that I've known for many years, the time that I've been a Christian, I've understood that 2 Thessalonians is a scripture with very strong language about hell. It was one of my go-to passages of hell. But it wasn't until even studying this week that I fully grasped the context, which is he writes these strong words, even about hell, even about the eternal punishment for those who die in their sin as a form in the context of encouragement. William Hendrickson, the commentator, describing the strong language here, says this, quote, human language is stretched to its breaking point in order to convey the terrible coming of the Lord in relation to the wicked, end quote. So having said that, that does capture the middle evidence that we're talking about, the retribution for the rebellious. But that retribution for the rebellious is bracketed by the relief for the redeemed and the reward, or we'll even see two rewards for the redeemed. Beloved, we can put it this way, God's righteous judgment will be revealed both on the bright side of salvation and on the dark side of condemnation. The first evidence in our text in verses 6 and 7 of God's righteous judgment is relief for the redeemed. And see, we know that we see in this age, we see the wicked flourishing and very often the righteous suffering. We see the, very often the cruelty and arrogance of evil people who persecute. We see the people of God suffering, opposed, ridiculed, boycotted, harassed, imprisoned, tortured, and even killed. And 
It's not right to us. We know that it's not right. But we understand that for the believer, we understand the glorious truth that the way of salvation releases the greater burden of sin. Pictured by uh, John Bunyan, for example, in the book Pilgrim's Progress, with Pilgrim, who Pilgrim had the great burden of sin that was strapped to his shoulders. And then finally, towards the beginning of the book, when he went to the cross, the great burden of sin that was on his shoulders fell off his shoulders and went tumbling down the hill into the empty tomb. So again, we know that the way of salvation releases the greater burden of sin. But, beloved, the way of salvation does also introduce and add the lesser burden of suffering. That's why For example, Luke tells us that Paul and Barnabas, in Acts 14, verses 21 and 22, good Dr. Luke records for us that Paul and Barnabas, after they had preached the gospel and had made many disciples, they returned, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, watch this, saying, through many tribulations, through many afflictions, through many crushing pressures of life, we must enter the kingdom of God. We know, like King David in Psalm 23, that he will dwell, that we will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. We know that he is with us and he leads us through the valley of the shadow of death into his eternal presence. And through that valley of the shadow of death, there are many trials and afflictions that Paul was speaking of to the church in Acts 14 and that Paul uses here even by way of encouragement to this sweet young church. And as we consider Christians in the world, now we consider Christians in history. We know that some testify their loyalty to Jesus Christ, their fidelity to the gospel message with a lifetime of service. Others testify with their death as a martyr. A one Example from history, in A.D. 156, there was an 86-year-old pastor of the church in Smyrna, a man named Polycarp. Polycarp had actually been ordained by the Apostle John to be the pastor of the church in Smyrna. And Polycarp was arrested merely for being a Christian. And the Roman ruler told him that you must renounce Christ and you must worship the emperor. And Polycarp Even though he was an old man, he stood firm, he stood strong in his faith, and he would not renounce Christ, and he would not worship the emperor. And the Roman ruler said, unless you deny Jesus and worship the emperor, I will burn you alive at the stake. And before he was sadly burned, well, sadly from our perspective, but before he was burned alive at the stake, some of the congregation members from his church in Smyrna were there to give him encouragement, and they recorded his final prayer even as the flames began to lick his body. This is what he said. It's recorded by them. Lord, I thank you, watch this, that I have been counted worthy to be numbered among your martyrs. Beloved, taken directly from this letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to the church in Thessalonica. And for the Thessalonian believers, again, they were suffering persecution we don't understand, or at least we can't empathize with. They had sufferings that we can certainly associate with. But for them, in the flood of their persecution and afflictions, in the deluge of their trial and tribulations, they were in danger of sinking. And so that is why the Apostle Paul wrote this second letter only a few months after he wrote the first letter. And what he does is Pastor Paul offers them a theodicy in verses 6 
through 10. Uh, theodicy, that's a highfalutin theological terms that basically answers the question that one might ask that skeptics have asked. Well, if God is all good, if God is all powerful, as Bertrand Russell said, whence come evil? In other words, for a Christian, how do we understand the presence and existence of evil before an all good and an all powerful God? And throughout Scripture, we understand that God, in His goodness and sovereignty, ordains and makes certain the final victory over evil. God is not the author of evil. He is pure and holy and spotless. He's not stained by evil or by the presence of sin, but for His glory, He allowed evil and sin into His creation. And that is really the foundation of look at verse 6 that Paul begins here in this word of encouragement to this church that was suffering. He says, for after all, it is just for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you. Verse 7, and to give relief to you who are afflicted and to us as well, and to us as well, that last little phrase, it's basically the sheep and the shepherd. We are in the same boat. We are in this together. And God will give them, God will give us relief. Uh, the Greek word release, it, or, excuse me, relief, it basically talks about releasing tension. They would use it to describe, for example, a bowstring that was stretched taut. When it was released, that was the word they did here. It would be the dissipation of pressure. It's the Greek word anison. And some of you older people might know there's a medicine that's called anison that uh, is supposed to give uh, relief from pain for fast, fast, fast relief was their motto some decades ago. I don't know if the medicine and the company got their name from this Greek word, but it's the exact same pronunciation. The point here is God promises his children there will be a time when there will be a release from those trials, from those tribulations, from those pressures. There will be rescue, God's rescue from suffering. And this is because we understand from our perspective, from a human perspective, even from a right perspective, there's a certain element where persecution and afflictions, especially of godly people by ungodly people, seems to contradict God's righteous judgment, not to confirm God's righteous judgment. But God here tells us that that is evidence of his righteous judgment because, beloved, in the darkness of great evil, the light of bright hope shines even greater. And what Paul is saying here is, it is a reminder of the great hope we have that the tables will turn. The exact language here is, God will afflict the afflictors. God will punish the persecutors. He will pay back trouble to those who are causing you trouble, to those who are troubling you. Beloved, dear friend, understand God is holy and righteous. He will not leave sin unpunished. He will judge rebellion. And what Paul says here to the, these believers in Thessalonica that had people persecuting him, what he's saying is, God, not your persecutors, the all-powerful, all-good creator God of the universe, not your persecutors, will have the final word. There will be a balancing of the scales. And this is even why 
Paul will cite the same dynamic when he will later write to the church in Philippi and tell them, be in no way, encourage them, be in no way alarmed by your opponents, which is a sign of destruction for them and of salvation for you. And this too is from God. Beloved, dear friend, God is sovereign over all of it. He will work out his good purpose for his good pleasure. And this was the dynamic, when we think of the just and the righteous judgment of God, when Abraham was making a petition to the Lord on behalf of his nephew Lot, when God told Abraham that God was going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah because of, of their intense, gross wickedness, and Abraham was making a petition to the Lord to rescue Lot before he poured out his righteous judgment on Sodom and Gomorrah, in Genesis 18, 25, this is what God said, when he, or excuse me, this is what Abraham said when he was making the petition to the Lord. Far be it from you to slay the righteous with the wicked, so that the righteous and the wicked are treated alike. Far be it from you, shall not the judge of all the earth deal justly? So, beloved, Abraham, Paul to Philippi, Paul to Thessalonica, God is just. And what we have here is even almost like courtroom language in verses 5 through 10, where God demonstrates the evidence, shows the evidence, cites the evidence, and of course God is the one who judge, and God pronounces two verdicts, pardoned and guilty. All are under the umbrella of his righteous judgment. We were guilty before we were pardoned, but on this side of our salvation, that is what we hear. The verdict from God is we are pardoned, and as such, he will give us relief. We are pardoned, we know, because the just died for the unjust. And then look at verse 7. This will answer the question, or the rest of verse 7. This answers the question, because when will this happen, Lord? Is this in 2026? Is this when I turn 75? Is this when I turn 30? Is this, you know, when does this happen? And it happens at his coming. It's when, verse 7 in the middle, when the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven, when he will be apocalypto, uh, in and at the revelation, the unveiling, uh, the word translated as revealed here is the word from which we get our English word apocalypse. It's also the same word that is in the title of the last book of the Bible, the revelation, the apocalypsis of Jesus Christ to John. When the Lord Jesus shall be revealed, unveiled from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, literally in a flame of fire. Beloved, this is the white heat of God's holiness and purity, the white heat of Lord Jesus' holiness and purity. The same kind of even picture that the prophet Daniel cited when he saw the Ancient of Days sitting on his throne in Daniel 7. Daniel 7, verse 9, Daniel records, The Ancient of Days took his seat. His vesture was like white snow, and the hair of his head like pure Wool. His throne was ablaze with flames. Its wheels were a burning fire. And when Paul says that Christ is coming, he will be revealed with his mighty angels in flaming fire, I think the inflaming fire phrase there applies more to Jesus than the angels. We do know, even as I mentioned, the seraphim in Isaiah chapter 6 literally means the burning ones. We know that we have this image of angels having kind of a fiery glory around them, but... 
when Lord Jesus comes with his army, when he comes with his hosts of heaven, they will be like little tiny, barely glimmering sparks compared to the all-blazing, all-glorious, burning fire of Jesus Christ in his garb and in his robe and what he looks like. That is what he is describing here. And this burning aspect of the righteous holiness and purity of God and of Jesus Christ for us, for the rescued, for the redeemed, that means purification, that means preparation. It means part of us being fitted and suited for our eternal presence with him in heaven. And it also means righteous judgment and fury on those that die, sadly, in their sin. And it's interesting here, in 2 Thessalonians 1, verses 6 through 10, Paul sums up in a few verses what the Apostle John takes 22 flame-filled chapters to describe in the book of Revelation, to which I commend you men to be with us Thursday morning at 6 a.m. And beloved, when we realize that Suffering is part of God's design for us, even under the umbrella of this evidence of relief that God promises to us. Understand this. On this side of the grave, the most intense battles in our suffering are never fought on the outside. Even for the Thessalonians, some of whom were losing their lives because of the persecution, the most intense battles for any child of God in any situation is never on the outside. The most intense battles are always fought on the inside. It's the internal temptations, the internal doubts. And this is all part of God's purpose for us. C.S. Lewis had this choice quote about God's purpose of pain and suffering. He said, Pain insists on being attended to. That's just the axiomatic statement that in human existence we understand that. Pain insists on being attended to. God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks in our conscience, but shouts in our pains. It's his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. And so, beloved, end quote. And so, beloved, as such, dear friend, understand this. We cannot think that we can submit to his salvation without also submitting to his suffering. Now, that doesn't mean we seek out suffering. That doesn't mean we uh, clap our hands and get all excited when suffering comes our way. But what that means is by God's grace and mercy with the newness of life, we have a new perspective. We have a new worldview. We have a new purpose. We can trust the Lord. We can rejoice in the Lord. It strengthens the great hope we have of that great day when we will see him as he truly is and be with him forever. And how one stands up under persecution, even unjust persecution and afflictions, is evidence of how a man or woman will stand on that day when the refining spotlight of the righteous judgment of God is revealed. And imagine, for the here and now, imagine a lighthouse that shines brightly on clear, on a clear star or clear a cloudless moonlit night the lighthouse shines brightly but the very same lighthouse on dark and cloudy and stormy night only flickers what a useless lighthouse that would be how much more important is it for the lighthouse to shine even more brightly on a dark and cloudy stormy night to give rescue and safe harbor to the voyagers beloved in the very same way our light must shine 
brightly no matter what's happening around us. We must let our lights, by God's grace and mercy, shine even brighter on the dark and stormy clouds of suffering and affliction. So don't lose your hope, beloved, because if you lose your hope, you lose your way. So that is the first evidence of God's righteous judgment, relief. The second evidence of God's righteous judgment is retribution, relief for the redeemed, retribution for the rebellious. And what we have in verses 7 and 9 is there will be an exact matching of God's righteous judgment with the sin. I already covered verse 7. Verse 7 is kind of like verse 5 in that it's a transition verse. Uh, The coming, the second coming of Christ, the time when his if you'll allow me, his parousia becomes an apocalypsis when his coming becomes his revelation. The first coming, he was veiled. The second coming, he is unveiled. So at his second coming, that is the word and that is the evidence of his relief in verses 5 and 6. And it is also evidence of his retribution and leads into verses 8 and nine. And what he tells us here is there will be an exact matching of God's righteous judgment with the sin. This is where the fortunes will be reversed, where the afflictor will become the afflicted, where every wrong will be made right. Look at verse 8. Dealing out retribution to those who do not know God. Dealing out vengeance or due punishment. Uh, the Greek word translated retribution here has the same root as the word for righteousness or be God being just. And God deals out retribution to those who do not know God. Now, when he says that there, we might pause for a second and say, well, I remember reading in Romans 1 that everyone, every man and woman, know that God exists by virtue of creation, by virtue of conscience. And it even tells us in verse 18 of Romans chapter 1 that the unrighteous people suppress the truth. Their knowledge that they do have about God, they suppress that truth in unrighteousness. So when Paul says that God will deal out retribution to those who don't know God, what is he talking about? And the answer to that, beloved, is he's talking about a relationship kind of knowledge. Do you remember Jesus? Jesus said that there will be people that will come to him on that day and say, Lord, I did all these wonderful things in your name. And what Jesus said was, for some of them he will say, depart from me, for I never knew you. And Jesus, in his divine omniscience, he, of course, knows all people. He knows the heart of man. But what he's talking about is there's not the kind of relationship knowledge. There's not a bending of the knee, a willful bending of the knee to establish the kind of intimate knowledge of a relationship. That is the kind of knowledge that he is talking about here. These are those who suppress the truth they have, whether it's the truth of creation or conscience And even more grievous, if it's the truth that is preached to them or they understand from Scripture, they suppress that in unrighteousness. He continues on, look at the rest of verse 8. And to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. There is a coupling, there is a tying together of truly knowing Jesus from a relationship standpoint and obeying Jesus on this side of the new birth, on this side of having the indwelling Holy Spirit. He enables us to obey, to not just do the duty, but have the desire and the delight, which is all aspect of the kind of true obedience that he's talking about here. 
And when we think of obedience, uh, we know we know that the our obedience as Christians is to God, our obedience to God is not the basis of our salvation. But on the other side, we do know from Scripture that one's disobedience is the basis of his or her condemnation. Uh, nowhere in Scripture do we ever see that. God loves us or we are saved because of anything we do. It is a gift of God. But throughout Scripture, Old Testament and New Testament, when it talks about the retribution, when it talks about the condemnation, it is because man. So one's disobedience to God is the basis of their condemnation. That's what Paul is talking about here. And using the specific sin that is at hand here, the persecution, persecuting Christians by the unsaved is evidence on the outside that one is an enemy of the gospel on the inside. And what God tells us here is they will be fitted for the penalty that they will receive. Verse 9, and these will pay the penalty of eternal destruction. So, in something of the same way, we are fitted for the kingdom of God. Those who continue in their willful rebellion and suppression of the truth of God, they are fitted for the eternal destruction that is their penalty. The word destruction is total and hopeless ruin. Uh, destruction is the opposite of salvation. It's something that Paul had already talked to the Thessalonians about back in his first letter. In chapter 5, verse 3, when he's talking about the sons of darkness, he says, while the sons of darkness are saying peace and safety, then destruction will come upon them suddenly, like birth pangs upon a woman with child, and they will not escape. Jude, Jude also used some of the same language. In Jude chapter 1, verse 7, there's only one chapter, 25 verses of the little letter of Jude. Verse 7, Jude was citing the example of Sodom and Gomorrah and God's righteous judgment that fell on those intensely wicked cities. And Jude said, Sodom and Gomorrah are exhibited as an example in undergoing the punishment of eternal fire. And it's the same Greek word translated as punishment in Jude 7 as penalty in 2 Thessalonians 1 verse 9. Paul says eternal destruction. Jude will later say eternal fire. And part of this eternal punishment is an outworking and an extending forever and ever of the separation between God and man. And this is part of them being fitted for what their will and what their desire says. One who is in rebellion against God, one who continues in their sin is really saying to God, get away from me. Get out of my face. I don't want to be in your face. I want you away from me. Take off the fetters of your word. And God talks about this dynamic of what we have now, of this separation in Isaiah 59 verse 2. There Isaiah is talking to the rebellious nation of Israel, Isaiah 59.2, and says, Your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you, so that he does not hear. So Isaiah was talking about the dynamic on this side of eternity. What Paul does here is he talks about the separation, the eternal separation, on that day that these will pay the penalty of eternal destruction, the end of verse 9, away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. 
He's talking about a time when these men and women will pass into a night in which no morning will ever dawn. We, by God's grace and mercy, we go into an eternal day where the sun never sets because because it is the Lord himself, Jesus Christ, that provides the illumination and the brightness of that unending day. But for those who die in their sin, they again pass into a night in which no morning dawns. And one more element, remember back in verse 7, which was the transition between the relief for the redeemed and the retribution for the rebellious, that he is coming with his mighty angels in flaming fire. And I talked about the dynamic, the purifying, glorifying effect of that fire on the believer. There is the terminating and destroying aspect of that fire on the unbeliever. Jude also talked about this. In verse 14, Jude quoted the prophet Enoch. Uh, He quoted words of Enoch who said these words or wrote these words some 3,500 years before Jude wrote his letter some 2,000 years ago where Enoch prophesied, watch this, behold, the Lord came with many thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment upon all and to convict the ungodly of all their ungodly deeds, which they have done in an ungodly way, and of all the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against him, end quote. So, beloved, what Enoch was talking about, what Jude was talking about, what Paul is talking about is none will be overlooked, none will escape. One may reap the profit now, but there is no escaping. You will pay the penalty later. And what we see here in verse 7 going all the way through is that Jesus Christ is coming from his throne, from the throne of God. He's coming with the army of God, the host of heaven. But when we read Revelation, when we read Isaiah 65, 66, we know that he comes with his army, but he doesn't need his army. The army, the mighty host of heaven, aren't there to be warriors. They will be spectators, not warriors. I would imagine the archangel Michael might be a little disappointed. I think he's kind of the warrior angel, but uh, be that as it may, whether I don't think he'll really be disappointed. But the point here is he comes with his army, but it is Jesus himself, it is the risen Lord, not in humility, but in glory and victory that fights that final battle. And the reality is people don't want a just God. People want the righteous judgment of God for child molesters, for rapists. Uh, some people want them for Jews. Some people want them for Christians. We understand that. But nobody, no unredeemed person, man or woman, wants God's righteous judgment applied to self. And this whole dimension of the righteous judgment of God is offensive to an unregenerate mind. It's alien to a humanistic atheistic mind but what God says is that his righteous judgment is coming it's coming unexpectedly it's coming suddenly even for the children of God and it is coming catastrophically for those that are not the children of God his first coming was quiet and obscure his second coming will be loud and clear Uh, Jesus talked about this. Luke recorded this in his gospel. In Luke 17, verse 24, Jesus is recorded as saying, just as the lightning, when it flashes out of one part of the sky, shines to the other part of the sky, so will the Son of Man be in his day. And his point here, our Lord's, Lord's point there is, when you're there in the land and the lightning flashes and the thunder claps, you can't escape it. It's undeniable. 
And he continues on from there and cites about those that in the days of Noah. So it shall be also in the days of the Son of Man. They were eating, they were drinking, the men and women, in the 120 years that Noah was building the ark. And he was a preacher of righteousness. He was preaching the word of God. The people kept eating, they were drinking, they were marrying. They were being given in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark. Jesus' point there was people were so consumed with the present, they were so consumed with the now, that they completely ignored the testimony of the ark that Noah was building, and they completely ignored the word of God that Noah Noah was preaching. Until finally, when the rain was falling on the head and the water began to lap at their ankles and they tried to knock on the door to get into the ark, God's pronouncement was it was too late. And so the divine punishment then perfectly fits the crime, and the divine punishment in the future will perfectly fit the crime. There will be an exact matching of the judgment with the sin. Payday someday, it will be payday on that day. And those who continue their whole life to turn their face from God, God will eternally turn his face from them. And I will say this, friend, if you are here this morning and you're not a Christian, we are thrilled that you're here. We are blessed that you're here. You are always welcome here. And in love and in truth, I want you to understand, God says it will not fare well for you on that day. That is the testimony of God. That is the evidence of the retribution, which is his righteous judgment. I'll say one more thing, too. Paul, the Apostle Paul, who wrote these strong, harsh words, was a fierce, horrible persecutor. God rescued him. God rescued him. On this side of the grave, it is not too late. It will be too late on that day, but it is not too late now. Any sin, the sin of persecution, murder, etc., etc., no sin would separate you from Christ if you would turn from that sin, ask him for forgiveness, place your faith and trust in him and him alone. That is the situation. When... The Roman official questioned Polycarp, going back to the illustration I gave before. The Roman official said, don't you know that if you don't renounce Jesus and worship the emperor, I will burn you alive at the stake? Polycarp responded, you may burn me with fire, but the fire you burn me with only lasts a brief time. But if you don't repent, you will burn in the fire that lasts forever. End quote. C.S. Lewis, in his book, The Great Divorce, and The Great Divorce Between Heaven and Hell, said this about there really are only two kinds of people. There are only two kinds of people in the end. Those who say to God, your will be done, and those to whom God says, your will will be done. You turn from me your whole life, now I will turn from you for the rest of eternity. We All, dear friend, will either receive his word and escape his wrath, or we will reject his word and endure his wrath. We either embrace him as savior, or you will face him as destroyer, as executioner. It is either eternal glorification or eternal destruction. There are no other options. And the eternal glorification segues into our final evidence. We see the evidence of relief for the redeemed, retribution for the rebellious. Finally, there is the reward for the redeemed. And there are two rewards, glory and marvel. 
Maybe you're familiar with the military tactic, shock and awe. This is a blessed counterpart of that in a way. Glory and marble. The beginning of verse 10, when he comes to be glorified in his saints. To be glorified in his saints. What he is saying there is Jesus Christ, he'll have this incredible glory and this flame of fire that he appears, which completely overshadows even the shining reflected glory of the angels. What he says is his glory will radiate through you. It doesn't say among his saints. When he talks about the marvel, he will be marveled at among his saints, but here he will be glorified in his saints. It's kind of like this. You can think of a light bulb. Uh, the light bulb has a little filament in it, and when the electricity goes into the filament, the filament glows and shines brightly. Now, in the case of a light bulb, you turn the switch off, it goes out. What he's saying here, in something of the same way, when he comes again, his glory will shine brightly through you, and you and I will be radically transformed and changed forever and ever. That bright, burning, shining glory that radiates through you and me, through his church, through all of his redeemed people for all time, forever and ever, will never go out. It will never dissipate. Or another illustration, I want to be careful with this, but I think there is some merit here. When you think of the transfiguration, uh, Jesus in his humanity, we know from Isaiah, there wasn't anything special about him that men would look upon him. But at the Mount of Transfiguration, Peter, James, and John got to have a preview of his glorified body where his physical body shined brightly and glowed with his glory coming from his body. And something in the same way, we, his spiritual body, will radiate his glory in something of the same kind of the way his physical body did at his transfiguration. That's why, for example, when Paul will later write to the church in Colossae, Colossians 3, 4, he said, when Christ, who is our life, is our life now, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. The apostle Peter same thing, he said, the proof of your faith being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation, at the unveiling of Jesus Christ. So, beloved, reward number one is his glory radiates through us. Reward two is and to be marveled at among all who have believe. The second reward is an increase, perfected, fully matured, suited, fitted for his kingdom forever and ever to marvel at him, to praise him, to thank him, to love him, to worship him, and to be marveled at among all who have believed. Lord, as the centurion said, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. Lord, right now, I marvel, help my inability to marvel as I ought to marvel. But one day that will come. And by the way, that's even one primary purpose of preaching, of teaching the word of God, of preaching the word of God, of teaching the word of God, of sharing the word of God, is to teach your people how to get cancer before they get cancer. To teach your people how to lose their job unexpectedly, maybe even because of their stand for the faith, before they lose their job. He continues, for our testimony to you was believed. The sheep responded to the shepherds. And 
on that day, here in the New American Standard, the on that day is in the middle. It says when he comes to be glorified in his saints on that day. But in the original Greek, it's all the way at the very end. It literally says, verse 10, when he comes to be glorified in his saints on that day, or excuse me, when he comes to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed, for our testimony to you was believed on that day. And I think all the translators put it in the middle because people would be confused thinking that the Thessalonians believing the testimony of Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy is the day he was talking about. But all that to say, the point is there is tremendous emphasis on that day. On that day. Are you ready for that day? It's been said that safety is a good thing to pursue, but it's a powerless God. Safety is a good thing to pursue, but it's a powerless God. Beloved, dear friend, the testimony of God is we are only safe if we're safe on that day. We're only safe in Christ. We are only at risk, ultimately, if we are outside of Christ. This is the overarching message. This is the resounding encouragement from God to you and to me. And so, beloved, when things are going painfully, not triumphantly, may the glory of our future trespass into our present as God is weeding us off our love affair with the world. So that we may be, so that you and I may be better suited, better fitted for the kingdom of God. Please join me as we go to the Lord in prayer. Lord God, we praise you and thank you, Lord. We thank you for your powerful words from Paul to that church. Thank you for your powerful words directly from you, from the mouth of God to us in your word. Thank you for the foolishness and the frailty of preaching. Uh, mighty words that come from a mere man. Lord, help us to own them. Help us to trust more and more in the great hope that awaits us. Help us to long to see you as you truly are. Help us to be like the Apostle John closes out the word. Maranatha, Lord Jesus, come, come quickly. It's for your glory and for your honor that we pray. And Lord, for those that don't know you, aren't worshiping you that are sitting under your judgment we pray lord that you do a mighty work of rescue and relief and reward right now or at any point in the future let them come to you trust you and make them a new creature so that these promises will be true for them forever and ever it's for your glory lord jesus that we pray and that we sing amen